0: She watched the show, and for the first time in three years, she picked up the phone and she called her addicted son because she finally understood that he wasn't a bad person, that this was done to him because of greed. And for a Hulu series to make that kind of impact, I just found it really moving and, frankly, really hopeful.
1: Take charge of your thoughts, take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. For the last year, people have been asking me Have you watched Dopesick yet? Karen, you have to see it. So recently, I subscribed to Hulu and started the series. It is incredibly disturbing and tragic and heartbreaking. I knew some parts of this horrific story from reading Dreamland, the true tale of America's opioid epidemic, and interviewing Dreamland's author, Sam Kononis, in episode 95 of the podcast. Quinones exposes how Purdue Pharma, the makers of Oxycontin, claimed patients had virtually no chance of becoming addicted to the narcotic. Quinones then explains how patients get hooked on these narcotics, initially prescribed by their doctors for pain management, which then tragically often leads to heroin addiction. In the Hulu series Dopesick, we witness this all play out in graphic detail. Most of you know, I am no fan of big pharma. Of course, I'm thankful for medical advances, which have saved millions of lives. But as we've talked about in prior episodes, pharmaceutical corporations exist to make profits for their shareholders. We have to take this reality into account when we consider their marketing and their messaging regarding psychiatric medications, of course. But as DopeSick demonstrates, even when a doctor writes us a script for pain pills. If you doubt this, if you think maybe I'm just way too hyperbolic when it comes to all this pharma stuff, please watch Dope Sick. I was so moved by the series that I read the book to, and I've invited the author, Beth Macy, to the program. Here's a little more about Beth. Beth Macy is a Virginia based journalist with three decades of experience and an award winning author of three New York Times bestselling books Factory Man, True Vine, and Dopesick Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. Her first book, Factory Man, won a J. Anthony Lucas Prize, and Dopesick was shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal. It won the LA Times Book Prize for Science and Technology and was described as a, quote, masterwork of narrative nonfiction by the New York Times. Dopesick has now been made into a Peabody Award-winning and Emmy-nominated Hulu series on which Macy acted as an executive producer and co-writer. Her next book, Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis, was released just last week on August 16th, 2022. My conversation with Beth Macy, author of Dopesick, right after this. I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love & Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love & Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events. And it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook. Beth, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, first, I want to thank you for all the work you are doing. I came across Dopesick, which has garnered now even more fame with the Hulu series, I read the book and I actually listened on audio as well. So I'm sure you've heard this before. Now listening to your voice, I kind of feel like I know you because you've been in my in my earbuds <laughs> <laughs> for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, awesome. But the work you're doing is quite sobering and, and it's somber and the book is so heavy and so tragic. How did you come to decide I'm gonna dive into this head first and really try to understand what's going on with this very tragic? epidemic of addiction and destruction.
0: Yeah, great question. I was a local newspaper reporter here in Roanoke, Virginia back in 2010 when a really big local news story broke that that I didn't rep- report on immediately because I was like a family's beat reporter. This was more like a court story, but it was the fact that these two wealthy suburban kids—they both went to a private school—were caught up in this, and one died of overdose, and these guys were like 18 at the time, and the other was about to go to federal prison for five and a half years for his, because they were both using together, but 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 Spencer had sold the other young man who passed away, the heroin, and. So I followed these two families and really the goal then I remember my editor saying if we can can just convince our readers to get rid of all those excess opioids that were in everybody's medicine cabinets at the time, we will have saved lives. I mean, literally that was the goal. So kind of putting the community on notice that we have a growing heroin epidemic and a lot of these kids are starting out with pills, right? And readers literally like spit up their coffee when when they read the, sto- the stories, it was three part series. And they went, what? Wealthy white kids are doing heroin? We had no idea. So this is, by the time the piece, the series came out, it was like 2012. And then I wrote my first book, Factory Man, which is about the aftermath of globalization. That came out in 2014. And when I finished writing that book in 2013, I went back to my editor and my agent in New York. You know, and here I am. I live in, you know, like a mid-sized city, smallish to mid-sized city. And in, in the South and I'm like we have this burgeoning heroin epidemic and they're like we had that in the 90s I, I I think Roanoke's just late getting it almost like it was a trend They didn't want me to write that for my second book because they didn't see it happening in their communities and that's the thing with this epidemic it's happening but it's happening just below ground and so a lot of people don't see it so therefore they're not educating themselves about it so I wrote a different book for my second book and then when I got the idea for dope sick it was basically just like, Here again, coming back to you, we've now had economists show us that we have what's called deaths of despair and a declining life expectancy in the whole nation for the first time since World War I. And and the biggest contributor to this decline is opioid overdose. So this is a story. And by that time, Kenones had wrote his groundbreaking book, Dreamland, and which was more about the cartel side of it. And I wanted to write a book that <clears throat> really put the put the nation's families on alert that this was happening. And so I met with some families, I, I went back and did the origin story with Purdue, which is mostly what the Hulu show is about now. And really tried to ask, like, how are these communities doing now? And, you know, they weren't doing very well. So that book came out in 2018. I was kind of so bereft after writing it and just, you know, I had lost a person I had been following for two and a half years. She was murdered. And then I was just so pissed off that our policies were so bad. And I had watched this young woman, Tess Henry, just like hit barrier after barrier. And she was from a wealthy family. She should have totally been able to access evidence-based care, but she could not. And she just had doors closed, doors closed, doors closed. So one of the first things she ever said to me back in 2015 was, we need urgent care for the addicted. And she didn't know what that meant, right? So, Because she had been over-prescribed initially at an urgent care center. So it was kind of ironic when she said it, but she didn't know what it meant. And I didn't know what it meant because I'd never seen it. So the new book, Raising Lazarus, which comes out Tuesday, August 16th, is is an answer to Tessa's question. What is urgent care for the addictive? And so a profile, frontline, harm reductionists, treatment innovators, even sheriffs who are doing things really differently to try to help folks. And But these are all outliers. And I sort of make the case that what they're doing is what the rest of the nation should be doing, particularly at a time when we're about to get all this opioid litigation settlement money.
1: There are so many aspects and elements of this, and they all feel so corrupt. You even mentioned in the book, there's such a big business of recovery. It's a big business. And like you said, evidence-based. And I think you mentioned at one point, this 90-day model, that's not based on any evidence. And so many of the models are based on what seems to have worked. And I didn't think it has. There's certainly many people who've gone to AA and found that the Alcoholics Anonymous model works. But alcohol and opioid addiction, heroin addiction, that's not the same thing. And certainly you described that in the, no. the show depicts it very well, that the sickness, you feel like there's bugs crawling under your skin. I mean, you're, you're literally sick. So even someone who is in that mental space of, I need to get off this stuff, the physical addiction and the withdrawal. And I think that's what the visual of the TV show, it really lets you see it's excruciating, Someone who's watched their friend die yesterday is still going to go and try to get high because they want relief from the dope sickness.
0: It's the first thing they think of because they have to, what they say, we have to get well before we can do anything else today. So their whole world begins to revolve around getting well. This is why they lose their children, why they steal from their families, why they mess up Thanksgiving dinner, you know, and that's really hard for families who have also been acculturated to think that we have to let them hit rock bottom, but that's also kind of an outdated way of thinking, at least where opioid use disorder is concerned because rock bottom is often, in this era of super potent fentanyl, rock bottom is death.
1: Let's pull back and go to the Sackler family and start there for a bit. And like you said, that is really what the focus is on the series. And your book gets so personal. I, my heart was breaking for you because, of course, Tess's story. Oh, wow. and, and and at one point, I can't remember if it was Tess or some other woman that she reached out to you. Like You're a reporter and a journalist, but then you become part of the story because you're connecting and bonding with these people and they are they're desperate. And so they reach out to you and you, the boundary issue of where do, where do I go with this? Of course, like you said, this model yeah. of we have to tough love these folks that is perhaps better suited for a different type of addiction. I don't know. I'm not an addictions expert. I'm a psychologist who hasn't really focused on addictions. My interest initially, and you mentioned Sam Canonis, which I was so honored to have him, come on the program to talk about Dreamland. My interest has come from the pharmaceutical side as a psychologist who's very concerned that our culture, we should understand that these FDA approvals, there's a revolving door between FDA uh, folks who sit on on those committees and then who get jobs, uh, high-powered positions in these pharmaceutical corporations, and we see that in the series as well. I'm very concerned, and I, I would like you to speak to that a bit, just the entities at work in our culture who are giving us a comfort level with pills that I think is not helpful and and allows someone like you spoke to in the book as well, these young kids who will go to these farm parties, P-H-A-R-M parties, and they'll just pour all these pills into a bowl and just pop them out and take them. Well, they're FDA approved. They're my mom's medicine cabinet. So they've got to be okay. They won't be that bad.
0: Yeah. At first I thought that was kind of a myth, but no, it really happens to the point of like a young person was interviewing me the other day and she's like, yeah, you know, she just took it for granted that at a party people are going to be passing around pills. And I, it was the first time I'd actually heard somebody like admit that they had taken pills from a party that they didn't know what they were. And these days you can't, you can't do that at all because it might be press fentanyl instead of Xanax right. that you think you're getting. So that was really a thing. And, and you're absolutely right. And I think the show dramatizes it so well. You see like this Curtis Wright fellow that stamped approved on OxyContin, then goes to work for Purdue Pharma a year later, tripling his government salary. Absolutely, our institutions that were designed to protect us have fallen down on the job. Later in, I think it was around 217 or 218, Congress passed a new law that basically kneecapped the DEA from going after suspicious pill orders, which is why you had tiny towns in West Virginia getting millions of pills, towns that had 400 people. And of course, those pills were being diverted to the black market. Anybody with common sense would know that. And yet all of our guardrails have been voted by lobbyists and big pharma money. And we've got to do something about this. I mean, this is such an example of corporate greed trumping the greater good of, of what is healthy for the American public.
1: Yeah, it's depicted with a lot of clarity in the series. And that's why I'm so thrilled that all your hard work has not only paid off in terms of Dope Sick the book and then now Raising Lazarus, But also once it's picked up by Hulu and Michael Keaton, I mean, now we're reaching another broader audience, maybe someone who's not a reader, but they would watch the series. Now you're able to inform so many more people to pay attention. And it starts really young too. When we think about this comfort level that pharma and messaging and marketing has had for every little busy boy is going to be put on Ritalin or Adderall. Or Vivance. And so this is a concern as well because that comfort level, whether they're a teenager at the farm party and they think it's fine because it's in the medicine cabinet, or if they've just been taking pills their whole life because they've been told that something's broken with their brain. And now the idea of taking a pill, maybe more pills than necessary for a football injury, it's consistent with what they've been told the way to manage life and pain or discomfort or something that's uncomfortable or unwanted and undesirable. So I'm really concerned with this through line of Medicaid, 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 Medicaid. And of course, the most recent research that's Actually, psychiatrists have known for a long time, but I was pleased to see recently we're getting some mainstream mainstream attention to the fact that this serotonin level theory of depression is not substantiated by any research. So I'm hoping that that will cause all of us to wake up to what pharma is doing. Like you said, it's capitalism at its absolute worst. Families becoming yes. billionaires. We have to be
0: very skeptical, you know? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Sackler story, there's a great book called Empire of Pain that really teases apart the whole family story. But this idea of pharmaceutical marketing was invented by Arthur Sackler, who was the Purdue founder's uncle. And Mm -hmm. they're basically using Arthur Sackler 101. And then all these other pharmas jump in and copy those strategies. Once everybody saw how well Purdue was doing, all these, you know, generic makers and whatnot. And you see, they're starting to pay the price now with these litigation settlements. It all comes from like marketing, like let's go make some money. And so we have to be very skeptical. And yeah, the Adderall thing, that's huge on college campuses. I remember our youngest kid calling me saying, you know, it was finals week at college. And mom, what do I do? People are offering me these Adderall pills and my friends are taking them. And I know that's not right. Should I say something? You know, I mean, it's just everywhere. It's just part of the culture now.
1: Yeah. They call it a study drug. And it's, again, Mm -hmm. it's just, oh yeah, no big deal. Dopesick revealed to me, I knew the Sackler family from reading Dreamland, but I did not know that Arthur Sackler was this mastermind marketer who came up with the mother's little helper slogan for Valium. I had no right. idea. I had Making no idea.
0: Billion million dollar drug. Oh. Yeah. And they will tell you, oh, oh, Arthur had nothing to do with Oxycontin, which is true because he was dead before it was invented. But they use all of his techniques to promote Oxycontin.
1: Well, sure. (laughs) They learned from the OG pharma marketer. Oh my gosh. So Beth, when you look at what you've uncovered, your book is both touching and poignant. And it moved me to deep sorrow many times because I was just so sad for these mothers and fathers and family members. You know, I think it was Tess you talked about, she was just taking the pills as prescribed. And then after a couple of weeks was like, I think I'm addicted. I mean, it happened very quickly yeah. if it was tests or someone else, yeah. but it really was. Right. She she went, I must be addicted.
0: She literally Googled her symptoms and that's how she figured it out. She right. didn't know the word toxic then. She didn't know that these opioids were like taking heroin in a pill. She had no idea. And then how easy was it? Oh, she's a waitress at a nice restaurant. And oh, the other waitresses are already, they're sharing their pills. And then she gets connected with a drug dealer and that's the story. So I was bereft at the end of it. But, you know, I want people to know that there is hope, that there are people out there doing really progressive things. We're just not doing them at the scale to match the scale of the crisis. And that if we start to copy and use some of these really innovative strategies, we can help people like Tesla. We can give people urgent care for the addicted that Tess wanted and so desperately needed. I mean, she I can't emphasize enough, she wanted to get better. She didn't wanna be homeless on the streets of Las Vegas and doing sex work to support this habit. She wanted to be home in Virginia with her little son, Ronan. She was bright. She was a published poet at the age of 17. I mean, she wanted more for herself and her family. And she felt terrible. She had been so stigmatized through her whole journey. Like even when she got on buprenorphine, which took tons of money back then and tons of waiting to get on the list. I mean, there were so many barriers for her. I know she was murdered in a bad situation. They haven't yet solved it. But really, I think she wouldn't have been in that situation had she been able to access evidence-based care. I mean, I know it. I'm 100%.
1: And what are the barriers that are in place right now? As you speak to in the book, the evidence shows that, and I don't know the name of it, but it's maybe the drug you just mentioned. Buprenorphine, yeah. Okay. Is it similar to like a methadone clinic? That's what we used to hear. Yeah, and
0: methadone is very efficacious too. Buprenorphine is a little easier because you don't have to go to a a clinic every single day to get it administered to you. Buprenorphine, you can do take home. It's a pill that you pick up at the pharmacy just like any other prescription And some people will say, well, it's just treating a drug addiction with another drug. And yeah, that's true. But you have to really look at the science and understand that most people can't do it on their own, especially if they've been in it for a long time. And then they say, well, they're going to be on it for the rest of their lives. Well, yeah, just like a diabetic takes insulin usually for the rest of their lives, right? It is very Parallel when you think of it that way. It's just that because we've been taught, you know, going back to the war on drugs, that drug use is bad, these people are criminals, public enemy number one, that we just tend to look away. We don't want to see it. It's a hard thing to deal with in our families and in our communities. But the low hanging fruit is to make buprenorphine accessible for people with OUD. Period. We have an 88% treatment gap in our country. That means that only 12% of folks with this medical illness were able to access medication for it in the past year. I mean, that's abysmal. We can do better than that. And we need to do it by the Medicaid expansion in every state would really help. We still have 12 states that haven't passed it. But a lot of this could be done Locally too, especially as this money from the distributors money is already flowing down to states. Health departments could be taking this up. Federally qualified health centers, and I so I know some of them are doing buprenorphine, but they could be taking a bigger role. President Biden could demonstrating better leadership with this by elevating the drug czar to a cabinet level position, which it was previously in the past. In the early seventies, before he championed the war on drugs, President Nixon Actually, he was trying to gin up votes among veterans, made methadone clinics available in all communities on demand with housing and social support. And that really helped returning veterans who were hooked on heroin from Vietnam to get better. We've been here before. We can do this. It's just do we have the political will to make change and start removing all these barriers for folks who aren't in a position to jump 10 hurdles just to get to their first buprenorphine appointment?
1: Right. So it's partly a cultural mindset. It's partly our notion, again, going back to that Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to hit bottom. And, but the point is, in this case, people will hit bottom and they will die. And I yeah. get it. I, I'm so skeptical of pharma that I don't love the idea of replacing one pill with another. But the difference between someone being so addicted that they are going to turn to sex work and someone who takes a pill every day to manage the severity of that physical craving yes, that they literally can't can, live with.
0: And can get their children back. I mean, it yeah. really is like, they're not getting high on Suboxone, I mean, some people, a very small minority have figured out how to get high on it and how to shoot it up. Okay, so we're going to make all of our regulation rules based on the few people that are misusing it, not based on the people who are using it correctly, getting their lives back, getting their kids back, getting jobs, getting relationships with their families again. That's just its so punitive. I saw Tess get kicked out of her buprenorphine practice that she was paying like $500 a month to go to because she tested positive for marijuana. You know, and right. I know this is before marijuana was was legal in a widespread way, but I mean, that's just ridiculous. We've got to show these folks some grace or they're going to end up dead just like Tess did.
1: Yeah, it seems that we criminalize the victims in this scenario and the drug dealers are oftentimes getting away scot-free, and yet the folks who've now become hooked are the ones who are being criminalized. You mentioned the children oh, so yeah. often.
0: Once you a felon, forget getting a decent job. Right. I mean, that just makes all the difference.
1: No, and, and you mentioned the children. And my first job as a therapist years ago was in the south side of Chicago working in child welfare. And most of the children had a mother who was struggling with substance abuse and yeah. was trying to get her kids back and having a really difficult time. So I'm so thankful that you were able to then turn the corner to look at the hope and the potential. And, and I did not know about the Nixon administration and that this has been on a level where the executive branch has been able to bring this issue to prominence in the past that's encouraging to know that there is a precedent set for this. And so we can see, like you said, we've been here before and we can see a way out. Because one of the things that I also saw from your book and Dreamland as well, is that we do have these trends of drugs becoming the kind of trendy drug. And, And maybe in the 80s, it was cocaine and crack. And then crystal meth came along and Oxycontin was, of course, so huge, which then, of course, led to heroin. And now we're seeing this fentanyl, which is so disturbing. And you mentioned it briefly a moment ago, but from your experience and all the research you've done, help me understand, why do we have this situation where a drug dealer would lace a Xanax with fentanyl. I understand them trying to get you addicted to another drug because then they're going to get their customer to be even more hooked and that's more money for them. But why would you want to kill off your customer? I don't understand that.
0: Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I don't really know the answer to that, but it's happening. Yeah. And you know, fentanyl is so, it's so cheap and it's so, so tiny it, which is makes it so potent, right? And it's hard to mix in with other things. And there are people who are addicted just to fentanyl. So this idea that it's easy to smuggle in, in the wheel wells of trucks and stuff across the border, that's how most of it gets in, but it's really hard to catch. And then it's really easy to make. It's not like you have to grow a poppy field in Tanzania, right? People make it in labs, largely in Mexico, using... Ingredients that they've imported from China. So, I mean, there is a role for interdiction to play in this. I would never say there isn't. But, you know, it's pretty scary when you have teenagers who aren't addicted, but who are maybe experimenting. And we just had new data come out a couple of months ago showing that we lost a thousand plus teens last year to overdose. And it was largely fentanyl. And, you know, we don't know all the stories of it, but. By and large, these weren't people who were addicted. They were experimenting. They got drugs. I mean, even cocaine, they got unlucky and they got drugs drug that was actually fentanyl instead of what they thought they were getting. I mean, I have two people interview me earlier this year, back to back, and they both had lost siblings to fentanyl-laced other drugs.
1: Right, I came across a story of a young man who was stressed out about a job interview. I think he was in college, and he, and a friend said, "Oh, just take the Xanax because it'll help you calm down," and it was laced with fentanyl. Or
0: I mean, you know, this is a an epidemic that begins in the rural hinterlands, largely in distressed communities among poor people, and and now there's literally no socioeconomic, no region that has been spared a Gallup poll came out last year showing that one third of American families have been impacted by Mm -hmm. the overdose crisis. And frankly, looking at the raw numbers, I was surprised it wasn't higher. I think it has to be higher, sadly.
1: Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black. Don't wear white till it's right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single, So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amid single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. Beth, I want to thank you so much for all you're doing. And congrats on the launch of Raising Lazarus. Congrats on Hulu picking up the series. And it's, it's an incredible series. So for someone who's not a reader, I would, of course, encourage you to read her books. But if you're not much of a reader, I would say check out the Hulu series. You will really have the veil lifted. If you're still, to my mind, a bit naive about what's happening with pharmaceutical corporations, this will really pull back the curtain.
0: Yeah. I mean, what we say about the show is that it shows you in eight hours of entertaining, entertainment, I hate to call it entertainment, but it is. Right. Yeah. But you can watch the show and in eight hours, you can learn who the real bad guys are. Not your cousin, Eddie, who worked at Subway and got caught dealing heroin in order to support his habit. He's still in jail. But no, these pharmaceutical leaders that still walk free with billions in their pockets still, There's a clip from real life in episode eight where Connecticut Attorney General William Tong is saying, the Sacklers aren't going to have to sell one boat or one house. They're still super rich. And being super rich means you have a lot of power. Why would we leave them with this much power? So the book, in addition to being kind of a guide to how to turn back the crisis in your community, it's also a really interesting snapshot of a group of really gritty activists. Some of them are parents of the dead. Some of them are people in recovery like the famous photographer Nan Golden who are trying to agitate for accountability in this litigation, which is so non-transparent. Purdue finagled their way into bankruptcy court so they couldn't even protest outside of the court because everything went on Zoom during COVID. And you see this really scrappy, gritty group of activists still, by golly, we're going to do everything we can to make sure they pay for what they did to this country. And so that's really, I think, inspiring too. We don't know where that case is going to end up. It's currently on appeal. But for the first time in reporting on this for over a decade now, I have a little bit of hope that maybe there will be criminal indictments eventually. Because of the show, people are really starting to understand who the real villains are. You know, one of the best... Feedback that we got was a mother reached out to a member of our writing team and said she watched the show. And for the first time in three years, she picked up the phone and she called her addicted son because she finally understood that he wasn't a bad person, that this was done to him because of greed. And she finally got it. And for a Hulu series to make that kind of impact, I just found it really moving and frankly, really hopeful.
1: That's really very poignant, like you said. It's quote unquote entertainment, but if you're taking it seriously, which I don't know how anyone could not. I mean, it, it grips you pretty quickly. The series that I don't know how someone could watch that and not have their blood
0: start boiling.
1: When you guys decided to go in the I mean, there's the book is how yeah, did, it's way
0: different than the show. It's basically it the is. show is basically the first third of the book. Right. It ends in two thousand seven. Shortly after that is when the heroin started coming in to replace the Oxycontin, knowing that it was a really good business model (laughs) among people who were already addicted to pills. So there's a lot more in the book than in the show. For sure.
1: And how did you guys decide to go in that direction? With That was really the
0: decision of the show creator and the main writer and showrunner Danny Strong. He just was so incensed when he, you know, he didn't learn about this really until 2018. And he's like... I want to give those bad guys the trial that they never had. And because we had access to this material about the two prosecutors played by Peter Sarsgaard and John Hoganocker who are so great, you know, we yeah. did just a show straight about addiction, just about the victims. It would almost be too much for the viewer to handle. Yeah. But we have this exciting story that's going on based on what really happened. And that gives it another element. And and there are good guys in the government that worked on this, but by and large, you know, they haven't succeeded yet, but we're still holding out hope.
1: And another layer of this, as a psychologist, I've been trained to be very dependent on research to make any kind of assessment about human thinking and behavior. That's what we do as psychologists. And then to see that they manipulated research by quoting a letter to the editor As this research study, they took it from a letter to the editor. And then later, it's called this landmark study, claiming that just 1% of people get addicted when opioids are prescribed in this manner. And that was just not true. So, marketing can be slick and it can be attractive, but then for them to basically take science and research and lie about it, and that's the foundation for why these doctors felt comfortable prescribing so much. Then it's, you start questioning research in and of itself. And so, you should. I mean, that's yeah.
0: <laughs> kind of the you know, You should. Who's funding these studies? Yes. You know, Purdue Pharma was funding a lot of them. They were setting exactly. up pain orgs and hiring. They were hiring the very best pain management experts in the nation to become paid spokesmen. So, like, that's what the show teases apart. You see Rick and Randy figuring this out in real time. I mean, that really happened. The show's been fact-checked to the nth degree. Michael Keaton said we were on a panel together last night. He said, there were times when I read the script and I'm like, Danny, this villainy couldn't have been this obvious. And and Danny's like showing him the documents. Look, read this. They really did this stuff. You almost couldn't make it up.
1: You couldn't. And we all need to be much more savvy and much more aware. And I think that's another one of the important messages that your work is providing for us. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, Beth, I know you have a TV appearance. You need to scoot off to go to share your message further. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for all the work you're doing. Honestly, like I said earlier, as I was reading and listening to your the book, I my heart was going out to you because I know that this is not something you can just report and, and remain stoic. I knew that this would have impacted you deeply. <laughs> and I so thank right.
0: you. I wasn't going to write about it ever again. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> no, it's got a took on me. It's not done with me yet. So thank you for all your interest in the issue. I know you've done a lot of podcasts about it. So it, every little bit helps. And the answer is really just to make sure everybody's educated about it so we can vote accordingly and you know protect ourselves and our families when... People try to overprescribe things to our kids and et cetera. We've got to be our own advocates in this. Yeah, exactly.
1: Thank you so much. The book is coming out. Raising Lazarus is coming out in a few days. And yeah, yeah and where can they follow you to see your work? Website or social media?
0: My website is BethMacyWriter.com. I'm on Instagram at, at bethmacy. I'm on Twitter at at paper girl macy m a c y. I was I was a paper girl years and years ago, and I love Mm -hmm. newspapers. And also I'm at Beth Macy Author on Facebook. And my book tour, I'll I'll be coming around large swaths of the country here starting next week. I'll be in Chicago at the Printer's Row Book Festival in a month or so. So maybe I'll see you there, Dr. Karen.
1: Yes, I would love to come. Yeah, I've been to that festival a long time ago, but this would be a great reason to go again.
0: Yeah, well, make sure... I get to meet you if if you come. I'd love that. I would
1: love that. Thank you so much, Beth. I appreciate
0: it. You're welcome. Take care.
1: The love and life hack for this week is just because a doctor prescribes it doesn't mean you 100% should take it. Doctors trusted Purdue Pharma. Patients trusted their doctors. And yet many patients became addicted and then moved from OxyContin to heroin. We need to remain savvy and consider the many powerful influences at work regarding health messaging, even if it means questioning sources we thought we could implicitly trust. Thank you, as always, for listening and being a part of the Love & Life family. I've been on an extended social media break, so the best way to remain connected is to sign up for my newsletter at loveandlifemedia.com. As a bonus, you'll receive your free Empowered Dating Playbook. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great week.
0: Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer Dr. Karen Anderson Abril.